Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. We're going to get into the Word this morning. Um, before I get into the Word, I want to just encourage everyone, next week will be Nikki Cruz. Um, I will say this, Nikki has been a general in the Army of Christ for many years. He would not like me saying this, but I'm going to say it anyways. He is getting older. He will not admit to it. I, I think he will continue fighting against it, but he's getting older. And I'd encourage you to avail yourself of an opportunity to hear, hear from a general faith like this, especially at the age that the, he is now at. Because I'll be honest, I don't know how much longer we will have his voice. And I'd encourage you to invite people to come out and to be a part of that service because I believe it's going to be a, a, a real blessing to all of us. Amen? Amen. Okay. I want to get into a message that I've entitled Double Salvation. Double salvation. Now, this message was kind of birthed out of a few people that kind of asked me through our prayer times on Wednesday night, uh, Pastor Michael, would you be willing to teach a little bit about spiritual warfare? I had a few people say, you, you know, we see some of the things that are happening around the world. We, we know that a lot of these things are even fulfilling prophecy. They're fulfilling the last day scriptures. But we also know that there's a spiritual component to that. We, we see it in the book of Revelation. We see it in the book of Daniel. And we don't know exactly how to, to walk through that. We, we, we don't know exactly how to be equipped to be able to handle that. So would you be willing maybe to go through and do a little bit on spiritual warfare and, and teach us of how to process through what we're seeing in the world right now? So this message kind of came out of that. And I'm going to do a little bit of a short series leading up to Christmas where I'm going to talk about different forms of spiritual warfare and how to prepare ourselves for it. Amen. So today I'm going to talk a little bit in the, the scope of spiritual warfare under the title of the double salvation, which I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about our need in spiritual warfare to have hope. And I'll explain what I mean as we get into the word. Now, now one little caveat before we get into it. My first part of this message is actually stolen from another sermon. I, I was listening to a sermon last week from Times Square Church from Pastor Claude Hood from Canada, and it was so good. It set up things so well, explained things so well, that I said, I need to take this for myself. So I took part of that just so I can set up where I'm going to go as we get into the sermon. But I encourage you to go listen to his message. It's on the Times Square Church website. It is called Persecution and Pressure. It is powerful. It is and he'll do a much better job than I'm going to do today stealing his notes. Amen? All right, Father, we give this to you now, Lord God. And I know that there are people in this room, Lord Jesus, who need hope. So I depend on you, Holy Spirit, and I call on you to take the words of Scripture, to take the words, Lord God, of, of what we're going to be speaking about and dissecting. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take them and you would anoint them with an unction. There would be an unction. There would be something that would strike people's hearts, that would go past just listening to a sermon where they would hear the very voice of God for themselves. And as they hear the very voice of God, I pray there would be given strength. I pray, Lord God, there would be given a response, a deeper response of hunger, a deeper response of a thirst for you, a deeper response of, of a, a desire, a gratefulness, a gratitude, Lord God, a faith that would begin to build. 
So Lord, we commit that to you now. And Holy Spirit, I pray for your touch over this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter four, verses one through five. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Now stop there. Now, Acts chapter 4 is the first recorded persecution against the church. And it's interesting because it actually paints a picture of where and how persecution manifests against the people of God. In this passage, it was the Sadducees who possessed the power to be able to harass and to be able to put Peter and John into prison. Now, in the Gospels, we would read a lot about the Pharisees, but in this text, they're not mentioned. In fact, the word of God actually draws our attention to another group that was there during the days of Jesus, but kind of took a back seat. And there's a few things that you need to understand about the Sadducees. Number one, they were the ruling class of that society during that time and that day. And not only were they a ruling class, but they were very carnal men who were using religion and using the systems of religion to try to further their own personal agenda of gaining power. Now, why did they want the power? Well, you have to remember what the Sadducees believed. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in demons. But most of all, and this is the most important of all of it, they did not believe in a judgment day where men and women would have to give an account to God. And they were using their influence in society to do everything that they could to destroy and to annihilate any conviction of personal responsibility before God. But there was so much more that is going on in Acts chapter 4 because Peter and John's persecution, and this is important, Peter and John's persecution had a deeper source than just the Sadducees. There was something deeper going on than just the power-hungry ruling voices trying to use their sway to be able to influence public opinion to be able to get rid of anyone and anything that believed in eternal consequences. Does that sound like our day today? In fact, let me show you something. Verse two, and this is important. I'll put it up on the screen, but I want you to get this word right here in this verse because if you don't get this, you won't understand where we're going. In verse two, it says they were greatly what? Disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now that word disturbed in the original Greek is actually used later on in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 16. And I want to read that to you. Acts chapter 16 verses 16 through 18 says this. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners for fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, 
the Spirit left her. Now watch this. That word annoyed is the same Greek word for disturbed that we just read about in Acts chapter 4. Which means, watch this, in Acts chapter 16, and follow me here, Paul was experiencing and dealing with a disturbance in his spirit. Why? Because there was a spiritual attack. Satan was working through a demon-possessed girl to try to harass Paul and Silas. And the fact that Luke uses the exact same word from the text that we just read to describe and explain the response of the Sadducees to Peter and to John It shows us, and this is important, that the pressure of the cancel culture, right, that was trying to silence their voices all the way in Acts chapter 4, listen to this, was actually a spiritual attack. It, It wasn't just a disagreement of opinion. There was a spirit that was going on behind the scenes. Peter and John weren't being persecuted because somehow they got into a debate and someone had a different side. No, 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 no. They were being persecuted because the devil was trying to destroy their testimony and their witness for Christ. And since these are spiritual battles, this is important. In Acts chapter 4, and and we talked about it in Acts chapter 16, right? That means that Peter and John couldn't fight against them and overcome them through natural means of just logic and debate. Did you hear that? If this is a spiritual battle that's going on, logic and debate in and itself will not work. Those are natural means. There has to be spiritual weapons that we pull from the scriptures to be able to tear down those types of strongholds. Do you realize that the oppression that you feel at your work because some of the policies that are being enforced like pronouns, right? Or like this idea of this inclusion. You you can't speak out about anything. that, That those types of things, that oppression, and I want you to get this, is actually at its root a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual attack. It cannot be battled with logic. Try it, it will never work. Now, I'm not saying we don't debate, and I'm not saying that we don't have honest conversation, and I'm not saying that we don't talk and evangelize and share the gospel and share the word. But that alone, without the spiritual component, falls flat to what we're actually dealing with. The political climate that we're fighting through right now is a spiritual battle. The overwhelming peer pressure that is on our children and on our families that is trying to groom them to believe that whatever they seem to to make them happy, whatever they feel is true is the truth. Those things are spiritual battles. And since they're spiritual battles, this is important, we need to go to the word of God And we need to understand how to fight against them God's way if we're going to be able to stand, if we're going to be able to endure, or if we're going to be able to overcome. We need to understand what the scripture actually calls us to do. That's why I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, probably the most famous of all passages when it comes to spiritual warfare and spiritual battles. Listen to what Paul actually says. He says, finally, ready for this? Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
And then he goes on, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Two things I want you to get from reading through this text. Number one, and this is important, the Bible is very clear that there is something that we actually have to do as believers if we are going to be able to stand under the pressure, the oppression and persecution that we are battling with. We have to make it a priority, according to Ephesians chapter 6, to put on the full armor of God. Just because you're a Christian does not mean you have the armor of God on. You have to actually put it on according to what Ephesians chapter 6 says. And not only do we make it a priority to put on the armor of God, but the passage will then go on. And what does it say? Then we need to stand and we need to pray. Listen to me. We are never going to be able to get through the spiritual battles that are ahead of us if we do not devote ourselves to what Ephesians chapter six is actually telling us to do. And I know that there are people in this room that are thinking, Pastor Michael, Pastor Michael, Pastor Michael, what do you mean by devote ourselves? That's some pretty heavy language you're using there. You're making it sound as if this has to be a priority over every other responsibility that I'm dealing throughout my week. Why are you using such definitive terms? Why are you using such heavy language? Well, simple. Listen closely to how the Bible, how God's word describes the spiritual forces that we are coming against. Look at it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, now at the beginning of these verses, I, I have it here. He says, finally, therefore, brother. And he, he uses the word finally to attach two thoughts. Because Ephesians chapter 6, and I want you to get this, comes after Ephesians chapter 5 and the rest of chapter 6 that speaks about interrelationships within the church. It talks about parents with children. It talks about children with parents. It talks about husband and wife. It talks about spouses. It goes on and it speaks about slave. And it talks about owners and masters and, and work and, and bosses and, and, and those that are those that that, uh, uh, have jobs and he's using all of these things and he's saying every dynamic that you're dealing with in the sphere yes there's an issue of flesh that is there yes there's an issue of the world that is there but he goes on and says but there's something even greater that you're fighting against you're not fighting against flesh and blood you're not fighting against trying to win an opinion there's something even deeper that's going on it's happening in the churches it's happening in your family it's happening in your marriage it's happening out there in the world it's happening at your workplace and he goes on and he says this, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, no, 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 but against the rulers, and then what does he say? Against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's amazing to look at the language that the Holy Spirit is using through the Apostle Paul to describe the enemy that we are fighting against. In fact, let me put it in a list form so you really get the full context of it, and I'll put it up on screen. Watch this. Ephesians chapter 6 says, we are struggling. That means in the Greek to wrestle toe-to-toe -to -toe with. It means to be on the ground and be wrestling almost for your life. It says we are wrestling for our lives. Ready for this? With what? With rulers. Paul's saying that there are spirits 
There is demonic activity that had been given license to rule over different areas, cities, nations, kingdoms. There are rulers. He goes on and says, but even though there are rulers, above that, there's now even authorities. And then he goes even further. He says, not only are there authorities, but there's powers of this dark world. And not only are there powers of this dark world, there's spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. So I got rulers, I got authorities, I got powers, then I got evil forces in heavenly realms, in cosmic realms that are messing things up down here. Any one of those things would have been enough to be able to make the point that spiritual warfare exists. But yet God chooses, and this is important, to put this list together and to describe it in such a way where he gives us a much fuller picture of the type of force that we're dealing with, like I said, at home, in our families, at our workplaces, in our churches, even in our own personal walk, and our devotion to him. And that shows us something. What does that show us? It shows us that Satan and his army are more well-organized and formidable than we think. They are not to be played with, and they are not to be dismissed. There needs to be a watchfulness and a sobriety about our spiritual life and what God has called us to do if we are going to stand. Did you get that? What I love about Ephesians chapter six, and we're not gonna get it in this sermon, we're gonna do it later on in the upcoming weeks. But I love how Ephesians chapter six doesn't say if you put on the armor of God, you might stand. Doesn't say that. It says if you put on that armor of God, you will stand. We are more than conquerors in Christ. But even though we are more than conquerors in Christ, we have to put on the armor of God if we are going to stand. Because these forces cannot be fought about through our own weapons and through our own means. They are too great. That's what God is trying to give the picture of through the list that I just put up on the screen. If we don't put on the armor of God, if we don't take to the calling that God has given to us of how we're supposed to stand, we are sitting ducks. Our families are sitting ducks. Our marriages are sitting ducks. Our workplaces are sitting ducks, right? Our, 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 our entrepreneurship, the, the things that God has given to us to do is a sitting duck. Our, our churches, everything we're doing, our devotion to God is a sitting duck. In fact, look back at Ephesians chapter six with me and I want you to see something because this is important. And if we're gonna follow the direction of what God is calling us to do because we see the sobriety of what we're actually fighting against, we have to begin to dissect what he's asking us to do. And I wanna start in verse 10, it says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's scheme. The first thing that God calls us to do, along with putting on the armor of God, is to be strong in the Lord. Now, what in the world does it mean to be strong in the Lord? Well, there's all types of definitions that we could use to explain that phrase, but the one that I want to zero in on this morning is, you cannot be strong in the Lord if you don't have a living hope inside of your heart. We have to have a resilient, and ready for this, a multi-dimensional hope if we're going to be able to be strong in the Lord and if we're going to be able to stand. If you don't have hope, You'll never be strong in the Lord. 
You have to have it. And it's not just any hope. Oh, we're going to get into it today. You need to have a resilient, you need to have a multi-dimensional hope. What does that mean? That means that our hope has to be both, are you ready for this? Transcendent enough and realistic enough to deal with the real world that we're actually living in. You have to have both sides. It's got to be transcendent and it's got to be realistic. But before we even get into that, let me put the definition of what hope is up on the screen so we all have the same starting point. You ready? I want you to see this. What is hope? Hope is something you expect in the future, whether it's a promise for God, whether it's something in the eternal realms, whatever it is, you expect something in the future that enables you to deal with the present. I expect this in the future, which gives me the grace to be able to deal with what I'm walking through now. But hope only works, you ready? If it's multi-dimensional. Let me give you an example. When the apostle Peter died, it was recorded that he was crucified upside down. Nero wanted Peter crucified, but Peter didn't consider himself worthy enough to die the same way that Jesus died. So he made a request to the Roman government to crucify himself upside down. Would you do it upside down? But this is what people don't know. Peter's wife actually died for her faith on the exact same day. In fact, one of the early church fathers, Clement, he actually wrote and said that Peter's wife was crucified before him. And this is what he wrote in his writings. I'll put it up on the screen. I want you to see it. Clement said this. He said, they relate that the blessed Peter, seeing his own wife led away to execution, was delighted on account of her calling and return to her country. And that he cried to her in a consolatory and encouraging voice, addressing her by name, calling out to his wife while he was watching her be crucified by name. And this is what he said, O thou, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. How in the world did Peter have the strength or the courage to face being crucified? And not just face being crucified, but to have such a peace about it that you could go to the Roman soldier and say, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you crucify me upside down? I'd be a mess. I'd be thinking about the pain. I'd be thinking about what I was about to go. And to think for a second that you had enough peace about this decision that you can actually say, you know what? I don't want to be crucified the same way my savior got crucified. I, I don't feel like I can even live up. I'll do it upside down. That's wild to me. Where in the world did he get the ability to stand in such an evil day? How did he do it? Well, the cry to his wife gives us a clue. Because when you look at what he said to his wife, you begin to realize that what Peter had was a transcendent hope. His hope was not in the comforts of the world. His hope was not in his position in the church. His hope was not whether I have this job or I have that job or I have this occupation or I have that occupation. No, no, no. His hope wasn't whether or not people loved him or treated him well. No, no. Do you know what his hope was? His hope was knowing the fact that a day was going to come where he'd finally see his Savior face to face. He knew that there was a day, there was something in the future that was going to give him the ability to be able to stand in the present. What was it? I'm going to see him face to face. And you know what his hope was? I want to please the one that loved and died for me. That's a transcendent hope. That's a hope that looks beyond the circumstances to something more. That, that, that gives a weight to our hope to be able to stand. But not only do you need a transcendent hope, listen to me. You need a realistic hope 
or your hope will not work. It will not give you the ability to stand and you will crumble in the evil day. I have met a lot of Christian couples, wonderful couples that I love that become disenchanted with the faith. Why do they become disenchanted with the faith? Because they believe that they're doing everything right. They, they live right. They come to church. They tithe. I hear that one all the time. We tithe. I was like, okay. Thank you. We pray. We read the word. We, we don't cheat anybody. We're honest in our business dealings. We don't lie. And then they go through a season where everything goes wrong. And they start dealing with health issues or they start dealing with issues in their families or they, they go to a court case that didn't go their way and, and they end up giving up on their faith. Why do they give up on their faith? Because they believe that if they live right, everything should be going right. I've actually had people come to me and say that. And in my stupidity and my ignorance of being too young to really realize that I should have been much more empathetic, I've said things and I've said it. I'm not proud of it, but I said things. Yeah, Jesus lived right. Look how it went for him. See, that type of hope is transcendent and it's supernatural, but it's too naive. It's too simplistic. It's too unrealistic to deal with the real world and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. See, the Bible makes it clear, and this is important, that God is writing our redemption story. He is painting a picture of redemption through our lives, almost like a master who's creating a tapestry. Do you know how a tapestry is made? A tapestry is made by weaving through the yarn a beautiful picture. See, God is weaving his redemption. He is weaving his grace. He is weaving his providence. He is weaving his love through our sin and our brokenness. And he is making something out of all of it that's gonna be this glorious picture that we don't see on this side of eternity, but we're gonna see in heaven one day that is gonna scream out the testimony of his goodness to angelic beings forever and ever and ever and ever. God is weaving his story of redemption, his kindness, his grace through the brokenness and through the sin of humanity around us, which means that you don't get just plucked out of the world when you get saved and nothing affects you anymore. It means that people have free will. They have free choices. You deal with pain. You deal with heartache. You, you go through those things, but this is what's amazing. God says all of it, all of it is going to be part of that redemption story and it's all going to work out for the good. God said there's not one part that you're going to go through, that you're not going to be a more than a conqueror on the other side. And not only are you going to go through and have really great mountain times of breakthroughs with me and valleys and wildernesses that you have to walk through, I am going to walk through every single one of them with you. And my grace will be with you. My strength will be with you. My comfort will be with you. My spirit will be with you. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. I will give you everything you need the moment that you need it to walk through it. And then all of it, the brokenness, the sin, the failures, the accusations, every last part is going to be interwoven by my grace to create a beautiful picture of my redemption in your life. All of it. Not one piece will be lost. And there'll be a day when we get to eternity where we see it in all of its majesty from beginning to end. Oh my goodness. See, that type of hope, listen to me, 
That type of hope is transcendent because you can look through the circumstances to something eternal, but that type of hope is also realistic and it's multi-dimensional. You need both. You cannot have a hope that is naive and at the same time, you cannot have a hope that is mundane. You have to have expectation and at the same time, you have to have realistic expectation. They have to be both, both have to be there. And we only get this type of multi-dimensional hope when we take the priority in our lives to study, to read, and to brood over the gospel. The gospel gives that type of hope. It doesn't come any other way. It doesn't come through just church fellowship alone. It doesn't come. It doesn't come through just having good friends around you, although that's part of it. It's the gospel. You gotta lay the gospel out. You gotta study the gospel. You gotta get hungry for the gospel. You gotta brood over the gospel. The gospel is what produces that type of hope. And it gives you the grace to stand. In fact, if you don't believe me, look back at Ephesians chapter six because it shows you where that hope comes from. You ready for this? He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, many commentators agree that this phrase, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, is being quoted by Paul from the Old Testament. It's being quoted from Isaiah chapter 40, which says this. It says, he gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. You guys all know this scripture, right? Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. But I want to go to the beginning of that chapter and read the first five verses to you because there's a part of it that we miss. Isaiah chapter 40, verse one through five. Look what it says. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her heart's service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low and rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now a lot of us lose the picture that God is painting in Isaiah chapter 40 because we are so far removed from the days of monarchs and kings. But in the day of Isaiah, you have to understand that when a king went out to go visit part of his kingdom or he went out to go visit a newly conquered land, the first thing the king would do is he'd send a herald. And the herald would come and he'd begin to call out to all the people in the land to bring them together to get ready for the king. Now this is important, watch this. The king would never travel on the common roads. He would never go down one of the common roads because he was too big. He couldn't fit on them with all of his horses, with all of his chariots, with all of his entourage. When a king came to town, listen to me, the king didn't come by himself. No, 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 no. He had a pomp with him. He had prestige that was with him. He had chariots and armies that were there protecting him all around him. And the roads, listen to me, they were too small to be able to fit the king. The king's majesty, his power, his might, this is important, I want you to get this, needed a new way. 
He couldn't come through the old way. He needed a new way. So the herald would go out and he would call to all the people of the land and he would gather them together. And why was he gathering? So that they could prepare for the king. But how did they prepare? They built what they would call a king's highway. They built a king's highway. And what they would do is they would actually broaden the road. They would start working on it and broaden it out. And they would build bridges over valleys so that the king wouldn't have to go long distances. So that he could go directly to where he needed to go. They would take all the rough gravel and they would smooth it out for the king. According to Isaiah chapter 40. And you got to get this. The king's power and his strength can only come to us if there is a new way. It can't fit down the old way. It's too great. It's too glorious. It's too majestic. It needs to have a new way. Our king, Jesus, this is important, needed a new highway, a new way into our hearts to be able to fit the grandeur of his forgiveness and his mercy and his love and his grace and his holiness. He couldn't come the old way. That's why when you read through the book of Isaiah, all the way up from chapter 1 to 39, all it ever speaks about is God's judgment. All it ever speaks about is God's punishment. But when you get to chapter 40, everything begins to shift in the book. Suddenly he begins to speak about this new way that is coming to the people of God. He said, get out there. There's something coming. The king is coming. And there's a new preparation, a new way for him to be able to dwell among us. Let me put this up on the screen for my journal. Someone needed to prepare a new way if we're gonna have the type of hope that can see the eternal promises of God and have them become more real to us than the physical world around us. That type of hope, that type of Holy Spirit vision and love for God needs a new way, a new highway into our hearts. Now what am I talking about? Well, Isaiah actually gives us the key in the verses one through three. Let me show you, because he speaks of this new way. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, but proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins have been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Verse three says that God's people receive from the Lord double for all their sins. Double. What in the world does double mean? Is Isaiah saying that God gave double the punishment to his people Israel, to us? Is it doubled? Is that what it's talking about? Absolutely not. Why? Because that would make God unjust. And God is perfectly just. See, if you read all the verses together, you begin to realize that what God is saying is he actually gave not double punishment, he gave double payment for his people. See, the first before said he paid. There's a double payment that is taking place in Isaiah chapter 40. See, when Jesus came and he died on the cross, I want you to get this, he opened up a new way for God the King to come into our lives. But he did that through his death because what did he do? He actually made a double payment for our sins. He made a double payment for our debt. There is a doubleness to our salvation in Christ. I know everybody's looking at me cross-eyed. What are you talking about? I'm telling you, it's in the Bible. I'm reading it from the verse. Double. 
Most believers have such a small view of what Jesus accomplished through his life and through his death. They think that Jesus gave them just enough salvation to keep them out of hell. That is not what Jesus did. He didn't just pay it just to the line. That's not what actually happened. In fact, let me put this up on the screen from my journal one more time. What we miss is Jesus didn't just die the death that we should have died. You ready for this? He lived the life we should have lived. Your bad record is not just imputed to him so that he's punished with the punishment you deserve. His perfect record is also imputed to you when you believe so that now God treats you the way that he deserves. Double payment. Double imputation. My sins are imputed to him for him to be punished. But his righteousness is imputed for me for me to be rewarded. Double. Double. This is the new way of hope that enters our hearts. Oh, do you see it? Most Christians don't understand the doubleness of Christ's salvation. They don't understand that there's been a double payment. They don't get it. I read a book last year, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Oh, what a book. It's called Spiritual Depression. And in it, it's just a series of sermons on why Christians go through depression and what to do about it. And there's one sermon in there where he talks about this doubleness of salvation. And he says, 99% of the time when I deal with Christians and they're being steamrolled by the enemy and they are depressed, they are overwhelmed, they are broken, it's because they never really understood what the salvation truly entailed. They never got it. Like I said before, they think that it was just enough salvation just to keep them out of hell and that's it. And now they're working so hard to be good enough so that God would treat them in a good way. And what they don't get is you can never be good enough to get God to treat you in a good way. Jesus came to be good enough so that now God sees his record on you and he treats you the way he treated him. He loves you as much as he loves him. Oh my goodness, when you get this, and I mean you get it. Some of you are sitting here and say, duh, Pastor Michael, I know this. Oh, we know it. But when we get it, I mean we get it, that's when a multidimensional hope begins to fill our hearts. That's when we start having hope, real hope, realistic hope, transcendent hope. See, people lose their hope. Because in the heat of spiritual battle, they begin to believe the lie that God no longer hears them and that God is no longer with them because of how fierce the attacks come. Because they feel like their prayers are not being answered the way that they think they should. And when we start believing those types of lies, what we do is we limit that salvation again and we start thinking there must be something wrong with me. I must be unacceptable to God. So we start going through the records and the list, right? It's not that the Holy Spirit is convicting us about anything. Now we're just searching for something. Oh, I could have prayed an extra hour last week. Ah, that's why. That's why no breakthrough. That, that's why God's not here. I'm not acceptable. Ah, oh, I, 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 I asked for forgiveness. I confessed that failure and sin, but I could have done better to resist the temptation. And, and because I gave in, that's why God's not here. That's why I'm not, that's why the breakthrough, my, my family, it, it, that's not happening because, because of me. It's me. It's me. It's something. Oh my goodness. And we lose track of the reality of what our salvation really is. I'm not saying that God doesn't correct us sometimes. 
I'm not saying sometimes he's got to bring a conviction into our lives, of course, but even in the correction and the conviction, I am still righteous in Christ, which means all of God's moving and blessing and grace is still with me, even if I got to walk through a few consequences because of my own stupidity. He not only will get me through, but he'll restore because he is gracious and he is good. And when you get it off your chest of performance and you start embracing this, that's when hope and freedom begins to fill your heart. And that's why when the enemy starts showing up and he's throwing rulers and authorities at you and principalities and cosmic places and all this stuff, Paul says, you will stand. You can say, enemy, God's not with me because I'm perfect. God's with me because Jesus was perfect. Enemy, I stand. I stand for my family in faith. You don't get to rob that. I stand in the place of prayer. You can't rob that. I stand every day in the will that God has called me to and the destiny and the plan that he has for my life. You don't get it. You can't have any of it because there's a doubleness to my salvation. I'm not just forgiven. I'm righteous. Do you see it? Do you see what Paul was trying to get at? Do you see the link to Ephesians chapter 40? Do you see it? Stand with me, Springs Church. I am 10 minutes ahead of schedule. Praise God. I woke up five o'clock this morning. I was supposed to pray. I slept into 5.30. Still righteous. Ain't gonna happen. But I went to prayer. And I started praying, God, where do you want this to go? I, this is what I said to him. I said, if this word was like a javelin, where's the point? Where's it all heading to? Where, where do you want it to go? Where, where do you want it? If it's gonna separate joint and marrow, spirit and soul. Where's it going to separate? What's it going to do? And I felt like the Lord put something on my heart for a call to the church. I, I felt like this word specifically needed a response. I felt like God said, this needs a response. I want a response from my people. I want them to respond to it. I kept on saying, what's the response? And I only know what the response is because I do it in my own life, not because I'm putting it on anyone else, but this is the response. I think many of us in this room need to take a moment before the Lord to repent of making too small of his salvation. We made it too small. We kept on thinking it's just enough to keep me out of hell, but I'm not really fully righteous. I'm not walking with God. He's not really with me. And these promises aren't really all for my life. That's for a better Christian. That's for someone else. And we made too small of his salvation. And it's a hard place to admit, but I do it in my own life. How do you know that you made too small of, of God's salvation? I'm gonna tell you how when you live under anxiety. I'm not saying you don't get a season here and there where the enemy might get a little jab or your flesh kind of falls into it a little bit. That's normal. But you live in anxiety. If you live under the heaviness of anxiety, can I be honest with you? You have not seen the fullness of your salvation. Because when you see how loved you actually are and how righteous you are and how for you he is, it breaks anxiety. It breaks it. So it's simple today. I'm gonna make a call to this church for those who need to come forward. And let me tell you this, let me say this. The Holy Spirit's the only one that could break this, this stronghold of making his salvation so small. 
You can't break it. Intellectual power can't break it. The Holy Spirit has to break it. But you have to confess it. And if you confess it and get honest before God, the Holy Spirit will begin to come in your heart and your life and he'll take you on a journey. Won't be all today, but he's gonna start taking you on a journey and he's gonna start reaffirming the gospel message over and over, the doubleness of the salvation until finally it takes in your heart and you're able to stand in hope. You could be strong in the Lord. So if that's you this morning, unashamedly, it's me, I do it, I've done it. I did it this week, I did it this morning but you need to repent of that. I want you to come forward. You just come forward. Worship team, the last song. Washed, last song. I want you to come forward. Say, God, I repent of making your salvation so small. I repent of it tonight, today. And I want you to start calling out to the Holy Spirit, saying, Holy Spirit, come and let me see the doubleness of my salvation. Come, teach me, lead me into the doubleness of my salvation. Use those words. I need it, I'm up here. I'm gonna be worshiping. God, show us it. Lead us in worship team. Let's spend some time just with the Holy Spirit. Let's worship. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church. 